Welcome to Creation Training Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, the founder and president of Creation Training Initiative. And what we do at CTI, or Creation Training Initiative, is offer training courses for teens and above that will help equip you to defend your faith, and even for some of you, go out and teach about God's creation in your churches and communities. Well, we've been going through a series on understanding the basics of biblical creation. And as part of this series, we just started several lessons on apologetics. And just as a reminder, apologetics does not mean we apologize for what we believe, but apologetics comes from the Greek apologia, which means we have a verbal defense. We can actually defend what we believe. And in part one of apologetics, we answered two challenges. Number one challenge was, how could Adam name all the animals in one day? And challenge two was, who did Cain marry? Who was Cain's wife? And we showed that the Bible does have answers for both of those challenges. Well, in part two of our apologetic series now, we're going to answer these four challenges. Number one, how could the first three days of creation be literal 24-hour days if the sun was not created until day four? Challenge two, maybe creation is too divisive. Maybe we shouldn't study about creation because too many people seem to have a problem with it and it causes divisions within the church. Challenge three, where did all the water go after the Genesis flood? And finally, challenge four, how could Noah fit all those creatures on the ark? So those will be the four challenges we go through today. So let's start with challenge number one. How could the first three days of creation be literal 24-hour periods if the sun was not there until the fourth day? Well, both skeptics and even many people in church use this as a tool to ridicule or discredit the Bible's account of creation. How could there be light on the earth if the sun wasn't there until day four? In other words, they're teaching, maybe we shouldn't really talk about that part of creation. Or maybe that part of creation, the first three days, were not literal days. So we're told, obviously, the Bible must be an error. But as always, let me remind you, as always, this apparent error always comes from a lack of understanding or misunderstanding of science and what the Bible actually teaches. So a good way to answer this question, how could the first three days be literal days without the sun, is by asking a series of questions. That's exactly what Jesus did on several occasions to help clarify the issue. See, if we ask the other person a series of questions, they will, they will finally come to a conclusion that what they were believing was wrong, and they will discover the truth. And by doing this, by finding out the truth on their own, by asking a series of questions, They'll own the answer and they'll remember it better. So let's answer this question by asking a series of questions. First question, what is the definition of a year? Where would we get a year from? Now this is an astronomical event because the definition of a year is the time it takes for the earth to go around the sun. That is about 365 and a quarter days. So that's where we get a year from. Now question number two, where do we get a month from? Well, there's also an astronomical event that is called the moon going around the earth once. That's where we get the definition of a month. And now our third question. What is the definition of a day? Where do we get a day from? Well, the definition of a day is the rotation of the earth once on its axis. Again, that is an astronomical event and shows that we do not need the sun for the definition of a day. Again, the definition of a day is the rotation of the earth once 
on its axis. Now, in addition to this, we read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and morning were the first day. Genesis 1, verses 3 and 5. So the Bible teaches that God explicitly created light long before or several days before he created the sun and the stars. But what was this light? Well, let's examine this. First of all, there are many sources of light. We do not need the sun and the stars for light. There are many types of light, not just visible light. Now, there's shortwave light, which includes ultraviolet light, x-rays, and other forms. There's long-wave light, which includes things like infrared light, radio waves, and other forms. Light can also be produced by friction, by fire, by numerous chemical reactions, as well as nuclear reactions such as nuclear fusion and fission. Therefore, we can have light without the sun and the stars. And also remember this, God is light. He is the light of the world. Now, secondly, we can look very closely at the Hebrew words used here in the creation account. When God created light in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, the word indicates a presence of light only. However, the light that was used in the, when he created the sun and the moon and the stars is best translated a light source or a permanent form of light. So there's a difference in the Hebrew words used there. And third, think of this. If we try to make these days of creation long ages, and that's what people are trying to do, saying that the Bible does not teach the days of creation were little days, how could the first three days be little days if the sun wasn't there until day four? If they're trying to do this, we have even a bigger problem. Because think of this. The plants were created on day three, and the sun was created on day four. Now, if these days of creation were millions of years each, that means we would have millions of years of plants with no sunlight. And the plants need the sun in order to do photosynthesis. So this is terrible science to say the days of creation were long ages with the plants having no sunlight for millions of years. And finally, fourth, we read this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where Paul states this. For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, what is Paul saying? In this verse, Paul is alluding to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And Paul considers this to be an historical event, accurate event, that God did create light. When he said, let there be light, that is an historical fact that God created light about 6,000 years ago. However, this verse also has another meaning. The text means more than just a record of history. God showed Paul that his words also had a spiritual meaning. When he said, let there be light, also refers to Jesus Christ in our lives. As the divine light on day one invaded darkness in creation, so God's grace invades our sinful darkness. So it has a dual meaning here when in the verse where Paul reads from 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That yes, Paul refers back to Genesis 1, verse 3, that that was an historical event, God created light. But it also means 
the light shining in the darkness of our sin. And then finally, fifth, the Bible clearly teaches these days of creation were literal days and not long ages. It's overwhelming amount of evidence. For example, each day in Genesis 1 is preceded with a number. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Everywhere in the Old Testament we have a number of the word day. It only means a short period of time a day, never a long period of time. Then God defined his days, evening and morning first day, evening and morning second day. Everywhere in the Old Testament we see evening and morning, it only means a literal day. Then we go to Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 where God has written down the Ten Commandments. He wrote this himself in commandment number four. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. God wrote down six days, not six million years or six long indefinite periods of time. Then we can go to the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark chapter 10 verse 6 where Jesus Christ makes this statement. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Now, what is Jesus telling us? What Jesus is telling us is this, that man and woman were on this planet from the beginning of the creation, not after millions and millions of years. Is Jesus Christ wrong here? No, I don't believe so. In other words, Jesus Christ believed in a young earth. Then finally, we can go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, where God has finished his entire creation, and he calls it, very good, indicating his creation was perfect. If See, if there was millions of years of time in there, that would indicate millions of years of death, decay, and disease, because folks, that's what the fossil record is. It's a record of dead things. Did God just call millions of years of dead things very good? I think not. I believe God's creation was perfect, as his word says. So, conclusion, challenge one. How could the first three days of creation be literal days if the sun was not created until day four? Well, first of all, we do not need the sun and the stars for light. God created light. What that light was, we don't know, but he created light. And then we also know that God is light. So we have an answer to challenge one. Well, let's go to challenge two then. Creation is too divisive. We shouldn't be talking about creation. It's too divisive. Many people in the church have different opinions. We should just stick to the main doctrines. Well, let's see how we're going to answer this one. And to start this answer, let's go to the Bible. And we'll go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where we read this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Did you know what that verse just said there? All Scripture is God-breathed. Not some of it, but all of it, starting in the very first verse where it states, In the beginning God created. Folks, that is God-breathed. And then it goes on to state, And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for all good works. That verse, folks, says that all of Scripture is God-breathed and all of it is good for teaching so that we can be thoroughly equipped. Therefore, those pastors and church leaders who are not going to teach creation because it's too divisive, those are the ones that are being disobedient to God's Word. And we might need to even find another church unless they start teaching all of God's Word, not just the parts they like. Secondly, since creation is mentioned or implied in almost every book of the Bible, that means it cannot be a secondary doctrine. It is a primary doctrine. And third, if we want to understand who God is, 
we have to start in the book of Genesis. He is the creator of all things. That means he gets to set the rules for how we are to live. And since he's the creator of all things, this is why we call him Lord. In other words, if you want to understand who God is, you want to understand the character of God, you've got to start in the book of Genesis chapter 1. Also, if you want to understand about the character of God or the biblical worldview, you've got to start with the words, in the beginning God created. That is the very basis of a Christian worldview. And finally, fourth on this challenge, the first three chapters of Genesis. When we take a look at the first three chapters of Genesis, they answer the questions of what is the definition of marriage? And the Bible clearly states one man and one woman. If you don't believe the first chapters of Genesis, if you're not going to teach the first several chapters, where are you going to get your definition of marriage? Also, the first three chapters teach why there's death and suffering in the world. The first three chapters also teach why we need a Savior. The first three chapters are the foundation for the very gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the first three chapters are the reason the whole rest of the Bible had to take place. In other words, after Genesis chapter 3, the entire rest of the Bible is God's plan of redemption. So is this a divisive issue? Yes, it can be a divisive issue. So is the cross a divisive issue. But we teach that. And again, we need to teach all of Scripture. So conclusion on challenge two. Is creation too divisive? Does it cause too much division in the churches? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 commands us to teach all of Scripture, not part of it. We need not be disobedient to God's Word. We should teach all of it because all of it is good for learning and teaching. And secondly, the creation account, the first three chapters, is crucial to understanding not only the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the entire rest of the Bible. Well, now let's go to challenge three. Where did all the water go after the Genesis flood? Well, to answer this question, I'm going to use four scriptures. So let's start with the first one. Genesis chapter 7, verse 19 reads, And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. So there it teaches all the high hills, all the mountains on the entire earth were covered with ocean water. Then we'll go to Genesis chapter 8, verse 3 to continue our answer. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. So after 150 days of the water continually coming on the earth, it finally starts to recede. And now we go to Psalm. Psalm 104, verse 8, where it reads, They went over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you found it for them. So the waters went into a place that God found it for them. And finally, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 9. For as I have shown that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So what is our conclusion on this? Where did the water go from the great Genesis flood? Well, the Bible tells us the mountains rose, the valleys sank, and God put that water into a place that would never again overflow the earth. It is called the oceans as we have them today. So we have an answer for challenge three. Now let's go to our fourth challenge, our last challenge. How could Noah fit all those creatures on the ark? We're told there must have been millions and millions of creatures out there. How could he get them all on the ark? Well, let's answer this challenge in three parts. Number one, 
How did all the animals come to the ark? Number two, how big was the ark? And number three, how many animals really had to go on that ark? In other words, we're going to use the Bible, not opinions here. So part one, how did the animals get to the ark? Well, first of all, Noah didn't have to go out on some wild safari and gather up all these creatures. The Bible is very explicit here that God brings the creatures to the ark. Noah doesn't have to find them. God brings them to the ark. So that answers part one there. But how big was this ark? Well, the typical picture we have of Noah's ark is like a houseboat with giraffe's head sticking out. But folks, this is not what the Bible teaches. Unfortunately, that's the picture we see in most churches and Christian bookstores teaching that the Bible's not true. Right in our own Christian bookstores and right in many of our churches, pictures of a houseboat with giraffe's head sticking out. And that is not what the Bible teaches. In Genesis 6, verse 15, we read this. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. The Bible is very explicit on this. Folks, this is about a 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's about one and a half football fields long. So the ark was not some houseboat with giraffe's head sticking out. And we need to make sure when we teach about God's Word, we are accurately handling it. Incidentally, these dimensions, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high, happen to be the perfect dimension for floating. They give us a length to width ratio of six to one. Perfect dimensions for floating. One more important thing to remember about the ark, it wasn't designed to go anywhere. In fact, once the whole world had been flooded, where could it go? It was just designed to carry those that were on the ark so that they could survive this giant flood. Now this ratio of 6 to 1, length 6 to 1, length to width ratio, is also well known today in naval design for putting stability onto ships. Many of our modern naval barges, engineers design their cargo ships and battleships based on this length width ratio. How did Noah come up with the perfect design for floating? I believe God gave it to him. Now, based on these dimensions, let's see how big this really is. Based on these dimensions, the volume of the ark would be about 1.5 million cubic feet. Well, that may not mean a whole lot to you, so let's change that. Let's see what that really means. That would also be equivalent to 100,000 square feet of floor space. Now, that might be hard to grasp, but how about this? Have you ever been sitting at a railroad crossing and waiting for a train to pass? Sometimes you might get a long train and sit there for a couple minutes. But one of the things about this, this length here, this, this length of the, and volume of the Noah's Ark, the volume of Noah's Ark is big enough to hold 522 railroad cars. Now let's think of this. 522 railroad cars. That is the volume of Noah's Ark. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Now, imagine this. You're sitting at a railroad crossing and 522 railroad cars have to pass. Do you know how long that is? That is six 
miles long worth of railroad cars. That's what would fit in Noah's Ark. This was no small houseboat with drafts head sticking out, folks. We need to grasp how big this ark was. But now we have to answer this last part. How could Noah fit all these creatures, all these animals in the ark? Well, first of all, Genesis doesn't say every kind of creature that existed went on the ark. Only the birds and the land animals that had the breath of life went on that ark. This would exclude all the sea creatures and all the insects, which would bring us down to a maximum of about 50,000 animals that had to go on that ark. We're not talking millions. Again, sea creatures were not on the ark. Only those land animals and birds that had the breath of life. And insects did not get the breath of life, and they don't breathe like we do. They don't have lungs. So they didn't have to be on the ark either. Now, when we look at the creatures today, there's only very few large animals like dinosaurs, giraffes, and elephants. But the Bible never teaches. It never teaches that God brought the grandpa and grandma creatures to the ark. See, we put that picture in our mind because that's all we ever see on, on the media. And unfortunately, it's what we see in a lot of Christian bookstores, always bringing the large, full-grown creatures to the ark. But the Bible never says that. All God had to do was bring the young creatures to the ark. And the average-sized creature today is only about the size of a small sheep. Now, using our railroad car comparison, remember, it was big enough to hold 522 railroad cars. We can see that there's going to be plenty of room on the ark for all these creatures. See, the average railroad car holds about 240 sheep. Now, think of that. We got 522 railroad cars. The average railroad car can hold about 240 sheep, and we have 522 railroad cars that will fit inside this ark. Therefore, a train pulling just 210 cars would have ample space to fit all 50,000 creatures in. Mathematics, let's do a little mathematics. We got 210 railroad cars. Multiply that by 240, that's the amount of sheep that can fit in a railroad car. And we multiply those two numbers together, 210 by 240, we get just over 50,000 creatures. And folks, that's all the amount of creatures that had to go on that ark. And this would only take up about 40% of the ark's space. This would leave us an additional 312 railroad cars to take up and account for all the food that was necessary and any luggage Noah and his family may have taken on board. So the conclusion, the ark had plenty of space. Now, the Bible warns us about some things here. Very serious warning we get on that deals with Noah's ark. And we read this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. And it reads this. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world then existed, perished, being flooded with water. Folks, both non-believers and unfortunately many Christians have misrepresented the Bible's teaching about creation and the Genesis flood. 
Many out there still believe that the Genesis flood was a local flood, even though the Bible teaches contrary. Many out there are still teaching that God's creation was not six little days, even though the Bible teaches that's the opposite. However, in this session, we have examined four challenges. Four, four challenges. How could the first three days of creation be literal days, 24-hour periods, if the sun wasn't created the day four? We looked at that challenge, and that challenge comes from people who just cannot accept the plain reading of God's Word that He created everything in six days. Creation is too divisive, they were told by many church leaders. However, the Bible clearly teaches they are the ones being disobedient to God's Word. God's Word says we should be teaching all of His Scripture. Where did all the water go after the flood? Well, we had an answer for that one. And how could Noah fit all the animals in the ark? People are trying to discredit the Genesis account of the flood. They don't want to believe it's a worldwide flood. But in each case, we have demonstrated that the Bible is the Word of God, and it is trustworthy on all matters of science and salvation. Thank you, and God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Thank you.